Susan and Lucy Pevensey are well known to lovers of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. And as I prepared to preach on this passage in Luke 24, I couldn't get them out of my head. And let me tell you why. Because the couple in Luke 24 reminded me of Susan and Lucy as they walked away from the stone table on which a lifeless Aslan lay. Now, Susan and Lucy had loved Aslan, the lion, the creator of and one true king of Narnia. On Aslan, all in Narnia had pinned their hopes in the fight against evil, including Susan and Lucy. As long as Aslan was alive and well, well, there was nothing to fear. But Aslan lay dead on the stone table behind him and Susan and Lucy's world had fallen apart. Now Lewis describes Susan and Lucy's confusion and sorrow at Aslan's death and he does it in such an unusual way. Lewis interrupts the storyline to speak personally to you, the reader. Listen to what he says. I hope no one who reads this book has been quite as miserable as Susan and Lucy were that night. But if you have been, if you have been up all night and cry till you have no more tears left in you, you will know that there comes in the end a sort of quietness. You feel as if nothing is ever going to happen again. And I thought that could well have been written to describe these two travellers on the road to a place called Emmaus. Look at the passage with me and see for yourself. They are, number one, broken-hearted, okay? Their hope extinguished. Now, to see that, you only need to look at their faces. Look with me at verses, uh, verse 17, when Jesus, who had hidden his identity from them, uh, joined them in their walk. He asked them what their chat was. And what was their reaction? It says, they stood still, their faces downcast. Now, two things about this. They are so astonished at the question that it actually stops them dead in their tracks. Jesus was the talk of the town. His death was headline news. The events surrounding it, the signs that accompanied it. And breaking news, on this, this very day of their walk, the body's gone and there are claims of angels and a resurrection and Jesus is alive. What else would they be talking about? But their sorrow was so heavy that it seemed to pull their faces down. Why? Well, they tell us in this section in 19 to 24. But verse 21 in particular is insightful. We had hoped, had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. So they knew from the scriptures that God had promised his people a redeemer king, one who would speak on God's behalf and set up a new and wonderful kingdom. They were convinced that Jesus was that redeemer, the Messiah. But when the religious leaders, the ministers of the day, together with the Romans, the enemies of the day, had Jesus crucified, the disciples of Christ were both devastated and confused. That's not the way it was meant to end. That's not how they pictured it. This king was meant to be 
The Messiah, a hero on a horse, a king with a crown, a saviour with a sword. At least, that's how they envisioned it. But how can Jesus be that king if he died? And died on a cross? I wonder if you've ever been as brokenhearted or confused as these folks. Have you ever had your hopes for something great dashed? Well, if you have, you'll no doubt empathise with these two travellers. You'll understand what sorrow does to you, to your demeanour. You know, to have heartache so painful that it's just impossible to hide it. Let me point something out here. When you look at these two travellers, you will see that this is what life without a resurrection looks like. Anyone who looks at life and thinks this is all there is will at some point in their life despair, just like these Emmaus Road travellers did. <clears throat> the day-to-day -day routine that we go through just distracts us, doesn't it? It distracts too many people from thinking too deeply about existence, and maybe that's true for you. But when a relationship breaks down, when a child gets sick, when a loved one dies, what comfort is there in a life without Jesus as King, in a life without a resurrection? I miss visiting the National Museum of Scotland during lockdown. I visit it often with my family on Chamber Street whenever we get the chance. But there's one area where they show you a video about how the universe came into existence and how as a consequence we, human beings, came into existence. Now, there's no mention of God in it, of course. It's entirely secular. But the video glories in the wonder of evolution and celebrates our carbon-based constitution and the journey through billions of years of development ends with this cheery, and remember, you're all made of stardust. Well, that's just great, isn't it? I mean, I wonder how many people have found that to be a comfort. I wonder how many patients have sat in front of a doctor who said, I'm afraid there's nothing we can do, and replied, don't worry doctor, we're all made of stardust. I wonder how many people who've experienced the death of a loved one, even the death of a child, and have had their hearts lifted by the recalling of the fact that we are all made of stardust. No, there's no hope in that. And the brokenheartedness continues. But the good news of the gospel is that there is a resurrection. Jesus Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The story the women had told that morning was true. Jesus was alive. The testimony of the angel that freaked out the guards and spoke to the women was true. He's not here. He is risen. The testimony of Peter and John, John the faster runner of the two, was that the body was not in the tomb. Only the linen there, lying there like a discarded chrysalis, left behind by the living Christ. And here in this very passage, the risen Christ walks alongside them. That very day. For what purpose? Just for a bit of resurrection crack? No, he came alongside to serve them in their discovery. And to move them from doubt to faith. From brokenheartedness to blazing heartedness. From hope extinguished to hope ignited. And this is point two. They are moved to being blazing hearted, hope ignited. Now what's incredibly fascinating in this story is the way that Jesus does it. Jesus doesn't reveal his identity to them 
straight away. Luke 24, 16 tells us that when Jesus came alongside to, to see them, they were kept from recognising him. There's no, oh Jesus, wow, can that really be you? Uh, there is, there's not even a, do I know you from somewhere? You look familiar. Uh, there's none of that from these two travellers. Uh, and if you were in that situation, see, see, seeing the sorrow written on the face of friends you love with the power to blow that sorrow and confusion to smithereens, what would you have done? You know what I would have done? I would have gone, it's me, I'm back, don't be sad, death is dead, I'm alive, sin's forgiven, heaven assured, let's do this. Let's spread this gospel. But Jesus doesn't do that. He will, but he will do two things first. One, Jesus teases out the facts. Right? He asks them two questions that are really, I think, designed to get them thinking out loud. Verse 17a, Jesus had asked them, what's your chat? Cleopas responds, are you joking? Verse 18, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? At which prompts Jesus then to ask his second question, verse 19. What things? Now, what's the point of that question if it's not to get his disciples thinking? And that's what they do in this section 19b through to 24. They retell the story of Jesus in a paragraph, in shorthand. What do they say about him? Well, they talk about his ministry. Verse 19b says he spoke God's word and performed powerful deeds before all. And then they talk about his death in verses 20 to 21. He died at the hands of religious leaders and the Romans, but we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Had hoped. And then they talk about his resurrection, verses 22 to 24. They know there's something significant about the third day. They know now that the tomb is empty and that Jesus himself is reported alive. So, again, if you were there, you might say to them, and? Because they've got all the right bits, haven't they? They just can't figure out how it all fits together. I guess they're a bit like someone who's trying to build an item of flat pack furniture when they can't quite understand the instructions. They know they've got all the right bits in the box. They know what a Billy bookcase looks like. So what do they do? They just start to build it. But as they do, some bits don't seem to fit and other bits look like they belong to a different pack. And in the end, well, they scratch their head in confusion because the Billy bookcase they put together confidently falls apart. Well, that's what's happened here. There they are in verse 21, scratching their heads because they've built up an idea based on their tradition about what kind of Messiah Jesus should have been. And because he's not that, everything falls apart. Hearts broken, hopes extinguished. So that's the point of Jesus teasing out the facts, but then secondly, to go on to teach them to see. He tells them off for, first for being slow to believe the Bible. Look with me, verses 25 to 27. How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. Now in saying that, 
Jesus tells them, and actually everyone who reads verses 25 to 27, three super important things. The first, Jesus is the subject of scripture. The Old Testament testifies about him. In stories, commandments, promises and pictures, it's all about him. They're foolish because they should have seen that. That's why he calls them that. They're slow to believe it. Secondly, we see his death and resurrection together form the centerpiece of the scripture. Suffering first, glory later. That's what the Old Testament teaches readers to expect of the Messiah. Like Isaiah 53:11, which says, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. What does that say apart from the Messiah is going to die, then the Messiah is going to rise? They should have seen that. That's why he calls them foolish and slow of heart to believe. The third thing is that faith is the right response. In other words, these words of scripture are to be heard and accepted, believed and lived. Now, like the master discipler that Jesus is, he doesn't just correct them, he demonstrates. He shows them how to see what they should have seen on their own. Jesus takes them through the Bible to help them see him in it. Verse 27 again, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Can you imagine hearing that Bible study? I think in glory, I'm going to say, Lord, run me through what you ran through with them. Let us see it. I mean, did he talk about the serpent crusher in Genesis 3 and say, hey, that's me. Uh, did he talk about the progeny of Abraham through whom all nations would be blessed and say, that's me? Did he talk about the Passover lamb at Exodus and say, that's me? Did he talk about the promise made to David of a descendant who'd reign not just for a period, but forever and say, that's me? Did he talk about the suffering servant of Isaiah who would be pierced for our transgressions and say, that's me? Did he talk about the one who'd hand a shroud to death itself and say, that's me? Did he talk about the son of man in Daniel 7 entering glory, receiving sovereign authority and say, that's me? It's an an incredible thing, isn't it? Jesus reveals himself, not in the flesh, but in the Bible. He ignites hope and gets their hearts blazing by training their eyes, not on his physical risen form at first, but on the reliable and trustworthy word of God. That's glorious. And doesn't that serve us well today? I mean, how are we supposed to believe that Jesus died and rose again? Mary heard him say her name. We don't get that. We don't need that. Uh, Peter got to see his face. We, we don't get that. We don't need that. Thomas got to touch his wounds. We don't get that. We don't even need that, though. We can believe that Jesus died and rose again and not be slow to do so by believing the testimony of these witnesses and seeing the testimony of scripture throughout, how it all fits together. We can trust the truth 
of God's holy inspired words and the thousands of threads that reinforce the claim Jesus lived and died and rose again. Now Jesus, it seems, waits to reveal his true identity to these travellers in order to show them where, and us, where our confidence lies. It lies in the unchanging declaration of the Bible, never in our own subjective experience. You see, there was a day coming for this Cleopas plus one when they would no longer have the risen Jesus walking, talking and eating with them. Where would they look then for a solid base for their faith? In the clear light of day, however they were feeling, whatever anyone else said to them, they could pull out their Bibles, check it for themselves and say, we were not mistaken. Jesus died and rose and I believe it. Now, if you're not a Christian, do you realise what this says to you? It says that you can meet him in the Bible. Have you read it? I mean, you might feel like you may know none of it, or you may feel like you know some of the gist of Christianity. Wherever you are, it would be good for you to look at it again. Maybe it would be helpful for you to have the kind of walkthrough of it or the explanation that Jesus gave these two travellers, and we'd love to help you do that, to look at the book and see him and believe. You know, for those of us who do believe, what confidence Christ instills in us as we approach his word. You know, the making of a confident follower has to do with knowing and believing the Bible. And Jesus said in so many different ways, we can have utmost confidence in doing so. Look at the book and not only see him, love him, be enthralled by him. Have your hearts ignited. I mean, what was it in the end that these two travellers reflected on at the end of the day? They saw Jesus, right? But what did they marvel at most? Verse 32. Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? So the word of the Lord ignited their hope and made their hearts blaze again. And this resurrection appearance of Jesus proved to be the spark, if you like, because Jesus does appear to them and Jesus proves he is risen. And he appears to them in order to help them see all the things that we've just looked at. In Luke 24, 28 to, to 29, we find Cleopas and his friend invite Jesus to stick around with them and join them for dinner. That's nice. But the moment that Jesus chooses to open their eyes, is the moment when he takes in his hands a symbol of all that he's explained. Only four days before this, he had sat with his own disciples for a meal and he took bread, gave thanks and broke it, saying, take and eat. This is my body, which is for you. And as that bread tore at the end of the Emmaus Road, Cleopas and his pal saw the risen Christ. Verse 31. Then their eyes were opened and they recognised him and he disappeared from their sight. Oh man, can you imagine? They only saw him for a mere moment. He, dis he disappeared straight away. 
I mean, in his glorified form, resurrected form, the Son of God could disappear as easily, easily as he could conceal himself and his identity from people who knew him well. But why? Why not stick around? Why not talk and teach more? Well, the answer's in the text, verse 32. It was so that they could reflect on the hope that was rekindled in their hearts as Jesus taught them the scriptures on the way. They had to learn that lesson so that they could not only testify to the risen Jesus, but testify to the truth of his word, to teach us. And that's something of what Susan and Lucy experienced when they, as they walked away in their sorrow and despondency, heard the stone table behind them crack and turned to see the risen Aslan stride radiantly and victoriously toward them. They marveled at the significance of his death for death, where a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, making death itself turn backwards. Now the truth about Jesus and the significance of his death and resurrection does the same for us. It sets our hearts on fire and fills us with a new and inexpressible joy at this new and incredible hope. But there was another reason not to stick around. These two travellers, at the end of their journey, had somewhere else to be. Jesus disappears in order to get them up and running back to Jerusalem to tell their friends. That's what verse 33 says. They risked a late night seven mile run to tell those they'd left behind wallowing in their own confusion and broken heartedness and hope extinguishedness. I mean, you could lose your wallet at that time of night, but the news was so glorious and their hearts so ablaze with joy, they went at once. Now picture it. They arrive at the house where the disciples were staying that night, as the text says, from verse 33 onwards. They walk into the room. They're out of puff. They catch their breath. And just as they're about to say, guess who we saw? Someone else gets in first. It's true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. And they go, oh, don't. What a wonderful touch of authenticity as they go on to tell about how Jesus appeared to them. And importantly, as verse 35 says, they told him what had happened on the way, Bible study, and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke bread. Don't miss the point. The authentic response to meeting the risen Jesus in his word is to go and tell others. In drawing this to a close, Let's revisit the question I asked at the start. What is it that takes these broken-hearted people with hope extinguished and turns them into the blazing-hearted believers with hope ignited that we see at the end? It was seeing the suffering and glory of Jesus Christ on the pages of Scripture. It was following the threads of the promises and pictures to a cross and then to an empty tomb and believing. And those who believe that Jesus died and rose again can be sure our faith is not misplaced. And believers, truly, broken-hearted over guilt, downcast with sorrow, or slow of heart to believe, we can open God's word and find our hope 
and our hearts reignited every day. If you're not a Christian, this passage calls you to respond to, to believe. I mean, if the slowness of the disciples, of those who already believed, was foolishness to Jesus, how much more foolish is outright unbelief in those who haven't become disciples? This text encourages you to open God's word, see for yourself, get some help to do that, to see that Jesus died and rose for the salvation of many. Now, whether or not you're among that many, to know that salvation depends on your response. And the right response, in God's kindness, is right here in this book. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved.